Well, good morning, church. Good morning, balcony. Good to see you. Let's show our appreciation for those children's ministry workers. <clears throat> Amen. We appreciate you. Well, if you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Genesis 1-1. Genesis 1-1. That's on page one in the church Bible and probably every Bible ever printed. Easy to find. Uh, start at the left cover, turn over one or two pages, you should be there. Uh, this morning we're starting a new series called Biblical Anthropology. It is difficult to overstate the importance of this topic. John Calvin, in the introduction to his institute, says, Our wisdom, insofar as it ought to be deemed true and solid wisdom, consists almost entirely of two parts. The knowledge of God and of ourselves. There's nothing more important for us to be thinking about this morning than those two things, and specifically those two things in relation to each other. That's what we see King David doing in one of the most famous psalms in all the Bible, Psalm 8. David says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? All wise living begins with thinking about who God is and who we are how we got into this wonderful world and, and what our place is within it. And that's what we're going to be talking about over the course of the series. As I said, it would be difficult to overstate the importance of what we're about to talk about. It is important, but it's also relevant. Important means it's important at any time. This was an important topic 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago. This has always been an important topic. When I say relevant, I mean this is something we need to be talking about right now. Carl Truman, writing just a few months ago over at First Things, said that as the 4th century wrestled with the doctrine of God, the 5th century with Christology and the nature of God's grace, and the Reformation era with sacraments and salvation, so our age wrestles with the question of anthropology. What does it mean to be a human? More specifically, what does it mean to be an embodied human? For we now find ourselves not so much in a battle for the Bible, but in a battle for the body. And we're all feeling that right now, aren't we? It's, it's hard to turn on the TV or the internet, for crying out loud, it's hard to go for a walk in the mall without becoming aware of this issue. This is the issue of our time. And so we're going to dive deep. We're going to do a, a slow walk through the scriptures so that we can come to an understanding of who we are in relation to God, who we are in relation to each other, and who we are in relation to the world. And this morning we'll begin at the very beginning. So hopefully you have your Bibles open now to Genesis 1-1. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. 
And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening. And there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, Trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. Let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give lights upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, but the waters swarm." with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female. He created them, and God blessed them. 
And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's a long chapter. Let's all take a drink. It is a very long chapter. It's a foundational chapter. It's the foundational chapter in the Bible. You cannot understand the story of redemption. You cannot understand who God is. You cannot understand who we are. You cannot understand who we are in relation to God without understanding this chapter and without dealing with it. That's why we read it as a whole. But this morning, uh, we're going to look at that story as a whole. I want you to keep that story in your mind. Think of that as the frame, the picture in the frame. But we're going to zero in specifically on Genesis 1.26. Let me read that first part to you again, Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man. Now, we'll, we'll come back next week to what it means that, we, that God made man in our image and likeness, God says. In our image and likeness. What does that mean? It's tremendous significance. We'll spend some time on that. But this morning, I actually want to back it up just one more step and just look at the issue of the fact that we are made. You understand, there are tremendous implications to the fact that human beings are creatures. Now, we are exalted creatures. If you read Genesis 1 as a whole, the impression you get is that the creation of human beings was, in fact, the climax of God's creative work. We are clearly special. The entire framework and flow and structure of Genesis 1 is making that clear. Human beings are special and yet secondary. In the beginning, God. And so that setup, the fact that human beings are special but secondary, has tremendous implications, and that's what we're going to be looking at today. The fact that we are human beings, exalted creatures, special creatures. We are human beings. We're not just another animal in the zoo. We're human beings created by God. What are the implications of that? I think the first implication is fairly obvious. The fact that we are humans, human beings created by God, means that we have enormous dignity and worth. Again, the the arrangement, the structure of Genesis 1 is making that point. We're we're not just another animal. It's not as though God is saying, hey, then I created fish, then I created birds, then I created squirrels, then I created people. No. In fact, as you read Genesis 1, it almost feels like God is setting the stage. And, And so as he's setting the stage, he simply speaks things into being. He said, we're going to need some of this. Boom we got some of this. Let there be some of that. Boom, we got some of that. We need to have some of this. Boom, we've got some of that, right? Genesis 1, 3. Let there be light. 
and there was light. Genesis 1.11, let the earth sprout vegetation, and it was so. God is setting the stage, but when it comes time to create human beings, the entire narrative slows down and zooms in. Look at verse 26 again. Then God said, let us make man. Do you spot the change? There's a movement from let us make from let there be. Instead of just speaking things into existence, God slows down now and actually takes counsel within himself. These clues in the narrative are given, Calvin says, for the purpose of commending to our attention the dignity of our nature. Human beings matter to God. To be absolutely clear, every human being matters to God. This is one of the most important things you need to understand. And by the way, this is one of the places where the Christian worldview diverges from the secular worldview. Interestingly, right now, in in North America, in the West generally, a culture which has deep Christian roots, we have a desire in the West to say that every life matters, every child matters, every human being matters. That is our instinct and our desire. But in the post-Christian West, we have no reason for believing that. Because what is the worldview that has replaced the, the, the Christian worldview? the sort of Darwinian evolutionary worldview. What, where, you know, hey, I, I, I studied evolution in, in school, in high school, and university, as I'm sure many of you did. What in evolutionary theory gives us the idea that all human beings are equal in value? In fact, isn't the very premise of evolution the survival of the fittest? Have you ever read the entire title, the whole title for Origin of Species? It's actually origin of, I can't even remember it all. It's, it's, it's like 200 words. It's got more words in it than a bottle of saddle dressing. Uh, but blah, 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 origin of species to explain by natural selection the, basically the superiority of some races over others. What in evolutionary theory gives us the idea that all human beings have enormous value, equal, equal dignity, and universal human rights? Where do you, evolution says, if I can beat you up and steal what, whatever it is you've got, I should do so. And if you can beat me up and steal whatever it is that I have that you want, that's actually good for the species. Only in Christianity do we get this idea that all human beings matter, all humans have co-equal dignity because they descend from a common pair who were personally made by God. The, the Christian worldview says all human beings, irrespective of their, of their race, irrespective of anything, all human beings have incredible dignity and worth before God, whether in the womb or on death's door. We're, see, in our culture right now, we are starting to define human value in terms of human capacity. So a child in the womb who can't do anything. By the way, if, if, if we can argue ourselves into aborting a six-month-old fetus, we will soon argue ourselves into killing six-month-old babies. Because I got news for you. You put a six-month-old fetus and a six-month baby beside it, they have equal capacity with respect to just about anything. Neither of them are writing poetry. Neither of them are driving cars. 
Neither of them are helping out with chores. They have basically zero capacity. But we've started to argue that human worth and dignity is based on capacity as opposed to identity. That's a dangerous road. That is the reason why medical assistance in dying makes so much sense to us. Why would we spend so much money keeping old people alive who have lived past their capacity? We're entering into dangerous waters. But the Bible says all human beings, whether in the womb or at death's door, whether you have an IQ of 150 or 85, whether you are tall or short, whether you are rich or poor, whether you are famous or unheralded, whether your video gets 1 million views on TikTok or less than 24, you have incredible, inestimable worth before God by nature of the fact that you were created by God. Human beings have a relationship with God unlike anything else in creation. And on that basis, we have tremendous value and worth. Young people in particular, you need to build your life on that truth. Can I just, this is not a pitch for, this, for the series or anything like that. Let me just say, if you have young people within your sphere of influence, you need to encourage them to track with this series. And I'm not just saying like, oh, because it's going to be super, you know, I'm saying because this issue is absolutely critical for young people. See, I would say when, when I was growing up and probably when most of you were growing up and when my parents were growing up, it was the identity and nature and, and it was what we thought about God that was under assault. But just understand, for our young people today, it is what they think about themselves that is under assault. Why do you think anxiety rates are are through the roof for young people? You've heard me quote statistics before that that, that, the teenage anxiety rates, particularly in young girls, but, but all across the board, have spiked in the last decade, absolutely spiked. Not like, uh, you know, steadily going up. No, actually, they were going down in, in my generation. And then all of a sudden, boom, they've, they've gone off the charts. Looks like a hockey stick. Why is that happening? Well, two reasons. Because we've taught our young people that they don't have any particular relationship with God. And the opposite of anxiety is not calm. The opposite of anxiety is trust. So actually... You get peace when you know who you are in relation to God. So that's a big part of it. They also have no idea who they are with respect to the world because they spend all their time on a a digital phone instead of in, in the world. So that's a big piece of it. But also, they don't have access to these truths. They don't know who they are And instead, they've been lied to and told that their worth comes from the outside, from how many likes they get on their phone. You understand, these are the kids whose entire sense of self comes from little numbers and little likes. How come only 24 people watched my, you know, hairstyling video on TikTok, whereas this, you know, person over here gets 5 million people watching? And how come my picture about what I did on the weekend only had 8 likes, but this picture of this person over here got 2 million likes? That's how they slot in. Oh, yeah, I'm the 24 likes on the scale up to 2 million likes. 
All of their sense of self is coming to them from the outside based on external affirmations instead of being rooted in an unchanging dignity and identity by nature of their relationship to God. So if, I'm just saying, if you have young people within your sphere of influence, please encourage them to track with this, either live with us in person. It was great to have Ben do announcements. You're allowed, you can be a little ruder, a little stronger than I can be, so thank you for that. I'm going to actually, I'm going to call on you when I need mean things said. <laughs> but it is better in person, but I would say, but if your young people can't, I know, because students go back and forth from school, I get it, but have them track with us. Young people, you need to build your life on this truth. This is arguably the most important implication of the teaching of this text, but there are more. Because we are human beings created by God, it ought to go without saying that we do not determine reality. When we read Genesis 1, we notice that human beings are inserted within a pre-existing reality. They do not make the world, they enter into it. Now, for most of human history, that point would probably not need to be made because for most of human history, reality was overwhelming. For most of human history, you could smell reality the moment you opened your front door. Our great-grandparents spent most of their life with an inch and a half of sheep manure on the bottom of their shoes. They were literally grounded in reality. But with the advent of the Internet... That has changed. The internet has dramatically changed the way human beings relate to the world, the way they think about reality. Think about the difference, just for a moment, just to give you one degree in this change process. Think about the difference between television and the internet. Television was the, the dominant medium of the baby boomers. Television was the defining technology for baby boomers. Now, my parents, who are part of the silent generation, they were the generation that got televisions in their home in their teenage years. My mom loves telling the story of how she was a teenager when they got the television, and uh, she was excited because she wanted to watch Elvis Presley concerts or whatever, and my grandpa was excited because he wanted to watch Maple Leaf hockey games. So it it was a big deal when the TV went in your house, and And it changed the way people thought about the world. Because what TV does is it shows us what is happening outside in the world. It gives us pictures. It gives us access to that. And so our minds were expanded. All of a sudden, people aren't just aware of what's going on in their city or in their town. They're now aware of wars happening on the other side of the world. That's interesting. But television is a passive medium meaning somebody over there decides what we need to see here. Think of the way the news used to be delivered, right? There's, there's all kinds of stories happening around the world, but somebody at CBS or CBC decides what we need to see. They show it to us through a tube, and at the end, Walter Cronkite says, and that's the way it is. And so we receive content, or the baby boomers received content. That changed how they thought about the world. But now think about the internet. The internet is not a passive medium. The internet makes all of us content creators, reality creators. Television was produced by somebody at CBC or CBS and delivered to us. But in the internet, we produce our own content. 
That changes everything. So why watch Saving Private Ryan now when you can spend eight hours in your basement playing Call of Duty? Why read a magazine when you can publish your own content on Facebook or Instagram? Why watch a show when you can be the show on TikTok or YouTube? So we are all programmers and producers now, and that has changed the way we think about the world. Samuel D. James, in his book, Digital Liturgies, says this. He says, the digital liturgies of the web, that just means the rhythms and the flows, the things that we do, the way that we interact, the digital liturgies of the web and social media train us to invest ultimate authority in our own stories and experiences as they separate us from the objective givenness of the embodied world. That is an incredibly profound statement. He's saying that as we spend our time, you know, creating our avatars for online life, as we spend our time creating our online image, as we spend all our time posing ourselves, do you know how much time the average young person spends creating a selfie? See, I'm Gen X, meaning I don't really know how to use this technology my kids show me. And, uh, and I just, half the time I try to do a selfie, I turn off my phone because I don't know what, bu- what, what button I'm supposed to take. So I think I've got way more selfies than I have. The average young person is spending 20 to 30 minutes staging and editing those selfies, which they then pass off as like snapshot in reality, like, hey, ha, you know, it's like, I'm on my way doing a thing. And it's like, no, you're not. You're in your room with with lights and 75 minutes of makeup and now post-production. That changes how we interact with reality. We have begun to think of ourselves as game masters. This will only make sense to people my age, but we, young people are thinking of themselves like Neo in the Matrix, bending reality to suit their purposes. But that's not actually how the world works, which is why young people find the actual meat world so terrifying. See, because in the meat world, reality exists. In fact, this will also only make sense to you if you're my age. In the meat world, Reality bites. Like actually, reality exists. Biology exists. Boundaries exist. Natural laws exist, irrespective of your opinions and preferences. You see, you can give yourself a set of wings on your online avatar, but that doesn't mean you can actually fly. Because gravity exists. And people who start to live as though it doesn't end up in a coma. Samuel James goes on to say, Christian wisdom is about living a life that responds correctly to reality. Realities like there are only two sexes, male and female. Realities like you can only borrow money and spend money you don't have for so long before you go bankrupt. Realities like the early bird really does get the worm and a little sleep and a little folding of the hands to rest and poverty will come upon you like a bandit and want like an armed man. Realities like that. According to Genesis 1, human beings live in a world filled with given realities. There are lines There are laws, there are limitations, 
whether we approve of them or not. And so living well and wisely in the world requires us to acknowledge those things and to conduct ourselves accordingly. Thirdly, the fact that we are persons or human beings created by God implies that we have a pre-existing purpose. So in the same way that we do not define reality, according to the Bible, neither we do we discover our purpose. We are created with a purpose. The Bible says that we are created by God for God. Genesis 1.26 says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. We'll talk more extensively about this next week, but in the simplest terms, to be in the image and likeness of God means that in some way human beings resemble and represent God in creation. So human beings were meant to be mirrors reflecting the glory of God wherever they move and multiply across the face of the earth. Now, of course, fallen human beings, we'll get into what the fall is in a couple weeks. Fallen, as fallen human beings, our mirrors are cracked. The only human being to ever perfectly reflect the glory of God is, of course, Jesus Christ, which is why Jesus said to Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I can't say that. You, you can't say that. The truth is, whoever has seen me has seen something of the Father, but it's also been distorted by my own fallenness and sin. Not so with Jesus. Now, the good news is that when we come to Jesus, when we are converted and filled with the Holy Spirit, our cracks begin to heal, such that we begin to reflect God's glory as we ought. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, just for fun, I know that in a church like this, we're going to have many different Bibles. That's wonderful. Some of you will have King James, New King James, NIV, NASB, whatever. But, and, and, and you may have this same text note, but I know in the ESV, because that's what I was using when I prepared, there is a text note. So look at your Bible if you have an ESV in front of you. See if you've got a text note after the phrase, beholding the glory of the Lord. I used to have this verse memorized in, in other translations. And some translations, instead of doing the text note, will actually just insert the word mirror here somewhere. It's an unusual Greek word. Because it can mean either beholding in a mirror or reflecting in a mirror. And Paul doesn't say which. And so the ESV just gives you a little text note to let you know it could be either. Paul could be saying, and we all beholding the glory of God in a mirror, or he could be saying, as we behold God, we are reflecting God's glory as in a mirror. Paul's being a little crafty here, in my opinion. I think he means us to hear it both ways. I think it's just a subtle way of reminding us that the better we behold the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the better we will reflect the glory of God to all creation, as we were intended to do in the beginning. That is your purpose. You know, I used to be a youth pastor, and I used to say, you know, youth ministry is the fine art of answering the same 10 questions 10,000 times. Uh, and one of those 10 questions is, what is God's will for my life? I wish I had known the Bible well enough uh, when I first started in youth ministry, instead of trying to answer that question, to just read students 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, 7. Apparently, the Apostle Paul got asked this question a lot too. What is, what is God's will for my life? The Apostle Paul, in, in line with our brother Ben, it very directly answers this question. He's like, 
For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Paul says, do you want to know what your, God's will is for your life? That you look more like him and that you act less like an animal. That's, that's God's will for your life. Now, are there some details in there, where you should go to school, who you should marry? Yep, 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 yep. But like 95% of God's will for your life is that you stop acting like an animal, and by the grace that he supplies through the Holy Spirit, you start looking and acting like Jesus. God wants you to shine. That's your calling. Now, in the grace that he supplies, go and do it. Fourthly, the fact that we are humans created by God implies that we are morally responsible. To be morally responsible means to be free, at least to some degree, and also to be accountable. That's what it means. Anthony Hokema puts it this way. He says, man is not only a creature, however, he's also a person. And to be a person means to have a kind of independence. Not absolute, but relative. To be a person means to be able to make decisions, to set goals, and to move in the direction of those goals. It means to possess freedom, at least in the sense of being able to make one's own choices. So to be a human being means that we have a kind of freedom or independence. Not, there's the key phrase, not absolute, but relative. So here's what you need to know about human beings. We are free, but susceptible to influence. Now that is exactly how we were designed to be. We were created to be influenced by God. Remember, we're like mirrors. So we were designed to be able to commune with God, and in that communion, we were designed to grow and change. Do you understand that Adam and Eve, even had they not sinned, would have grown, developed, and changed as they communed with God? That's how you were created. That is what is un- that's one of the things that is unique about human beings. We have massive input ports, and we are adaptable creatures. That's the human condition. We are not squirrels, right? Squirrels are going to squirrel. Even should the devil whisper into the ear of a squirrel, you know what the squirrel is going to hear? You're right. It would be a good idea to collect nuts today. Squirrels are going to squirrel. It doesn't matter. But not so you. You are a free and open-ended creature in a way that a squirrel is not. See, to be a human being is is to be more like a monkey trying to ride an elephant while being dive-bombed by angry eagles. That's that's the human condition, right? you're, You're free. You're making decisions. You're picking a route, and you're working the reins, but the reality is you are susceptible to influences, both internally and externally. You have desires that can become inflamed and disordered. So that's like a monkey trying to ride an elephant. You can steer, but if the elephant gets something into his head, if the elephant wants to go over there, if there's something that smells interesting to the elephant, the monkey's going to have a hard time. And you can pick your journey and decide where you want to go, but it's hard to read a map while you're being dive-bombed by angry eagles. That's the human condition. We are free. 
We're making real choices, but we are dealing with inflamed desires inside and hostile inputs from the outside. And so it's complicated. And maybe you're sitting here saying, Pastor, you know, it feels to me like you're trying to interject some of that Calvinism stuff. No, no, no. Just to be very clear, this is not where the argument is between, you know, Calvinists and Arminians. There, there is a ditch, that what we've talked about right here, in fact, the person I just quoted talking about freedom is Anthony Hokema, who used to be a professor at Calvin College, right? So everybody is on the same page here. The disagreements are elsewhere, and we're not getting into them this morning. The, the, the Christian position is in the middle between two extremes. On the one hand, we have determinism. Determinism would be the idea that you are actually just a squirrel. You're, you're just like a squirrel. You're going to do whatever your genes tell you to do. Your genes are driving the bus. And by the way, that is what evolution teaches. That is what evolutionary atheists teach. You could probably Google a book called uh, The God Gene. Atheists love explaining all of you away by simply saying the reason that there, there are still people left in the world who are religious is because there are certain people who have a genetic proclivity towards believing in esoteric explanations for reality. That's you. Meaning you're just a squirrel attracted to a certain kind of nut. Right? Look at the person beside you. There they are. That's your nut. And so you're just going to nut. You're just going to squirrel. Because that's who you are at the genetic level. That's determinism. What a, what a bleak way to live. Now at the other extreme is the idea of absolute freedom. By the way, you, start, you hear that from a lot of, you know, postmodern philosophers who've never had jobs outside of the university. They'll say, you know, human beings, we can do whatever we want. You know, we are the captains of our own ships. We can steer our own destiny. And they dramatically underestimate the influence of our disordered desires and malevolent influences from the outside. They don't understand the extent to which we are influenced by our environment and our relationships. But the, but the Bible steers a middle course. It says, 100%, you're free, but also susceptible to influence. So think of the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Don't, don't, don't forget, you're susceptible to influence. So choose your friends very wisely. So that's who you are. You're, you're free, but subject to influences, both inside and outside. That's, but that's only part of what it means to be morally responsible. It also means to be accountable. Of course, Jesus reminded his disciples of that. He said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Does that terrify you? If it doesn't, you're not paying attention. So we're making real choices subject to influences inside and out, and we're going to be held accountable for those choices. See, moral responsibility is a wonderful truth and also a terrifying truth. But this is who we are. We need to know that. Fifthly, the fact that we are humans, human beings created by God, means that we are dependent. Again, to be a human being is to be a mirror. We were created to see something and to shine something in creation. So in a sense, we're like solar-powered vehicles. I know everyone in Canada is really excited about solar-powered vehicles right now. Imagine a car with a solar panel strapped to its roof. As long as some kind of connection is maintained between the solar panel and the sun, then the car is able to function. But what if the solar panel is covered in mud? 
what if the sun is hidden by a cloud? See, a solar-powered car that is cut off from its source of power is nothing other than a very expensive paperweight. Isn't, isn't that what we're all figuring out right now in Canada? That's the human condition. Human beings cannot do the things they were created to do unless they are in right relationship with God. We don't come with a never-ending battery pre-installed. We need to be connected to God. That's why the Apostle Paul says, be ever being filled with the Holy Spirit. You cannot be who God created you to be unless you maintain that communion with your creator. And that's a problem in the Bible because in Genesis 3, it says that the relationship was severed by our rebellion and that now there's some kind of barrier to communion with God. Genesis 3, 24 depicts that. It says that he, God, drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's a symbolic way of saying that our communion with God has been disrupted leaving us greatly diminished in terms of our capacity and function. We cannot do the things we were created to do apart from God. And that leads us to our final application or implication. The fact that we are humans created by God implies that we need to be saved and restored by God and that we can be saved and restored by God. We cannot save ourselves, but since God created us in the beginning... It stands to reason that he can recreate us at any time and in any way that he chooses. And the way that he has chosen to save and restore us is through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So God saves us by showing us what human beings are supposed to look like in Christ. God saves us by doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. In Christ, humanity has obeyed God perfectly. In Christ, a death has been given that pays for our failure. In Christ, the holiness, goodness, and beauty of God have been embodied and displayed. So if we confess our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, our sins will be forgiven Our rebellion will be forgotten, our hearts will be healed, and our future will be restored and restarted. That is how God lifts us up out of the depths to which we have sunk. That is how God restores us to our original dignity and majesty. That is the story of redemption. That is the gospel. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wondrous revelations of Scripture. Lord, without your word, we could never know the full truth of who you are and who we are and how you have saved us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. As we walk through the scriptures with this particular intent over the next several weeks and months, would you remind, refresh, and restore all those truths in our hearts? Would you 
apply them and fix them as our foundation through the internal ministry of your Holy Spirit? And would we grow up upon them like oaks of righteousness, like houses with a solid foundation in advance of the storms and floods that will surely come? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.